Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. For a fresh new start MJ Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis This is Book Talk with Fran Lewis Brought to you by MJ Network In memory of my sister Marcia Joyce That was Rachel and Michael from Trinity House, and they're going to be on Tuesday to talk about their new song, I Believe in You. But right now we have Jonathan Payne, Citizen Olive. Oh, you got to read this book. It'll really bring you joy and actually make you laugh and understand that there are people in the world that may be naive, but they're so kind. So journey to an unnamed mountainous country in Central Europe at the end of the Great War Enter Citizen Orloff. I love this guy. A simple fishmonger and an honest, upright citizen who stumbles into the Ministry of Security and consequently a hidden world of espionage and secrecy. And I'm not going to tell you about his first assignment. I'm going to let the author tell you. Good morning and welcome to MJ Network. This is going to be fun. Thank you. Thank you. Well, how did you create the first scene on the phone? That's what it sets the tone when you get to meet him. Yeah, that's a great question. So I wanted to have uh, I wanted to have um, the beginning of the book in terms of the way that he gets re- that Olaf gets recruited into the Ministry of Security to be like confusing to him and therefore not not entirely clear to the reader. Right? I didn't want to make it really obvious that he had been recruited. Is he there by mistake? Did they really want to recruit him? Did they want to recruit somebody mm-hmm. else? It's not clear to the character, and because this book is told in from his perspective, I wanted it to be kind of to leave it a little bit uh, unclear. And so I, I wanted to find a mechanism by which he could get into the Ministry of Security um, without really knowing whether he was supposed to be there or not. And so the, the, for folks who haven't read it, the way that he does that, he answers a telephone that's ringing through, uh, in a government office through an open window. He's just walking past. He has a. <laughs> um, he goes for a what I call in the book a constitutional, right? I don't know if that's a British word or whether that translates into American English, but it means he goes for his daily walk and he happens to go past these government offices. He doesn't even know which government departments they are, but he one day a phone rings. He and, and because the window is open, he gets very concerned that maybe national security issues are at risk, and he should, being the good patriotic citizen, he should pick the phone up. And so that is a little device. To be honest, uh, Fran, I never told anybody. Can I tell you a secret? I never told anybody this before. He, he, um, <clears throat> I borrowed the little device actually from a, a wonderful classic book by an Italian writer called Calvino who wrote a book called If on a Winter's Night, A Traveler, which there is a scene which is nothing to do with anything to do with this book, but there's a scene in which somebody opens, uh, pardon me, answers somebody else's telephone through an open window, and I thought... And I read that book a few years ago, and I thought that's the mechanism that I want to use to have him begin his journey. I've seen people grab a cell phone and try to 
steal other person's phone. This was really cool. So how does it, well, first of all, we realize that he doesn't comprehend the meaning of the call. So how did you create the message, and why was he going to follow up and search for the agent? <laughs> right. So so the message is, just to, clear, just to set the scene, the message is somebody who's unknown to him calls and says, Oh, we've we've in, we've installed the lever in the hotel room, but we, it's not in room six. You have to go to room seven instead, and that's it. And he has no clue what that means. Um, and the caller says, "You have to get this message to this guy called Agent Kosek, who is presumably a you know he thinks must be somebody that works mm-hmm. in this government agency." Um, so the way that I, the honest answer to the way that I created the message <laughs> is it sounds mm-hmm. really back to front but I, I I I created the message essentially out of off the top of my head and then wrote the first part of the book based on just following through the logic of that message so it sounds back that it must be the other way around but it wasn't I that message where he says We've installed it in room six, in room seven. Don't go to room six. You need to get room seven. Don't ask me why. <laughs> it's a long story. <clears throat> I just literally, I just was musing one day as I was kind of preparing the book, and I thought I want to create the kind of secret message that you would have in a classic spy novel, in which would intrigue a character to want to find out what on earth is going on. And so I literally just invented it out of whole cloth and then wrote the, all of what transpires in this, you know, in this hotel, around this hotel and the king and the bombing, really around that message. It really did work. And I'm cracking up when I'm saying this at seven, but go to six, go to seven. And he doesn't quite get it. So he gets to the ministry. Right. And why do they tell him that he has to work for them? And then he has to look for Agent Zelly. I, I said, like, oh, God, this poor guy is going to really have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, it, this is another thing where the book deliberately doesn't absolutely answer all of the reader's questions, right? That's intentional. Um, I think it's mm-hmm. more fun. But there are some, there is a clue later on in the book, which I think readers will pick up, which is when we get on to his friend and colleague, his fellow fishmonger uh, mm-hmm. agent, uh, pardon me, uh, citizen Vanev, who we'll, I guess we'll talk about him later, but um, he has a theory about why this happened, and he tells Olaf later in the book, in fact, when the two of them are in prison later in the book, uh, Vanev gives him a theory, right? And it, the theory is, and I, readers can decide if they buy it or not, but mm-hmm. his theory is they wanted a third man, so there was Zeller, there was Kosek on this kind of covert operation where they are supposed to be protecting the king, but in fact what they're trying to do is assassinate the king. And because they work for this, they belong to this strange faction called the Zealots who are Mm. uh, essentially want to kill off the king and put the crown prince, his son, in his place for whatever reason. So we never find out what those reasons are. Um, What Vanev said, Vanev is a lot more politically savvy and kind of wise, world-wise than Ola, right? And Vanev said, hey, look, I think this is what they're doing. I think what they're doing is they want to recruit somebody who's a simpleton. He doesn't use that word, but essentially what he's saying is they want you because they think you're easy to manipulate, and you will go along with this nefarious plan, whereas if they had taken a real agent from the Ministry of Security or the Ministry of Intelligence who was not a zealot, but a real agent, that person would realize that something 
improper was happening and would maybe uh, report them, would stop it from happening. And so they were looking for an assistant in this scheme who was gullible. Essentially, that's what Banesh said to him. Unfortunately, in this world, there are an awful lot of people like Olaf that fall for those stuff and wind up what happens to him. you got to really yeah. think things out before you just like, he was sort of impulsive at times too. So that's yeah. not good either. So why does he have to follow the instructions? And who is Vanoff? Why is he there for National Day? They'll come up with a reason for everything. <laughs> right. So, well, he doesn't have to follow the instructions. What you hear in Vanoff's, in, pardon me, in Olaf's thinking at the beginning is that he, yeah. you know, at, the, at this point, he has no clue that he is in some nefarious counterplot, right? He thinks that this is the government, and therefore if government agents and government operatives tell me to do mm-hmm. something, that must be the right thing to do, right? Because it's the government. So he doesn't have any clue that there are these different factions and different people doing nefarious illegal things in the government. He can't even conceive of that. He's just a regular working class guy. And so... He thinks, well, someone wants to pass this message to this guy in the, in the ministry of the government, and I'm told that it's life and death thing. As a, a good patriotic citizen, I'm just going to go and do it. Right? I'm going to deliver the message because I'm trying to be helpful. So he, he, at the beginning, he is, as you say, he's a little bit naive. He, but he's just a good, he's a good, honest guy who thinks that he's doing the yeah. right thing, and and he keeps doing what he thinks is the right thing until he's so deep into this plot that he can't get himself out of it. And that's essentially the shape of the, of the book, you know. Um, I feel you, so bad for that? him. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I wanted <laughs> to give him an a, a, a education in reality, but that would have killed him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think if, 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 then there would be no book in that case. So who is Petrovich and why is Olaf arrested? I got really angry. I said, how could you arrest this poor guy? He didn't do anything. What did they think that he did? He did. Yeah, so Petrovich is, uh, it, he finds out later in the book that uh, Petrovich is the guy, he's the kind of handyman, the, the, the guy that was calling at the beginning. He later discovers that, that mm-hmm. Petrovich is that, that guy. And it's interesting because when the bomb goes off, the zealots, what they say to do, is not just the off the king that they're trying to uh, frame. So it's a really complicated thing. It's one they want to get rid of the king, and they want to use the, the bomb that goes off to frame the people's state, which is the political, which is kind of this Republican um, revolutionary party that is run by Citizen Vanus. So Vanus is the owner of the, the two of them are fishmongers, right? Olaf and Vanus are fishmongers. Vanek is the owner of the special business in the square in the country. And but he's also he has a different he has two hats. Vanek is also the leader of this political party called the People's Front. And so um they tend to go around waving banners and protesters and marching against the, the monarchy. And um so what the zealots are doing in this this little um within the government is trying not only to kill the king but to frame the people's face. And so what they do is essentially what happens in, this, in the uh, early part of the book when there is this attempt on the king's life, uh, Olaf is mistakenly or kind of stopped in that they assume that he's part of the suit for the people's front, although he's not. And he gets wrapped up in all of that and gets, uh, gets uh, 
sent to God, it's like that. That's unbelievable. So, who is the people? What is the People's Party? Yeah, so the people's part of the text that we are on in the middle of the book is something what we, we, we learn in the early part of the book where there are two, there are two political, they're basically only in this little small country that's really set, sort of says at the beginning, it's set really nowhere. It's a, it's a central European country that I invented, right? Um, um, but it, it only has two political parties, and one of them is the people's front that we mentioned, which is run by and the other one is called the Workers' Party. And which is a lot bigger, mm-hmm. and then they, in the middle of the book, they, the two parties merge, and they decide that they'll take this as a revolution or better if they join forces, and they join forces, and they create this uh, party called the People's uh, Party. So who is Kozab, and why does he think that there's a party called the King? Yeah, so Kozab is the guy that... Um, he was supposed to be the recipient of the message. So he is um, a significant player in the beginning, in the first part of the book, because he's the guy who the message is, is designed for, and therefore all of at the beginning of the to find person to pass the message to him. And they said, he is a, he's a friend and um, compatriot of Agent Zella. The two of them are basically secret agents working for the Ministry of Security. But the key thing about Kosek is that he's also, like Zeller, he's a part of this Zeller movement, which is uh, actually plotting, despite the fact that their government operatives are also plotting to kill the king. So he's a, kind of a shady figure. So he thinks that they're planning to kill the king. Why is he so gullible? Yeah, I think, um, I don't think ultimately, it's an interesting question. I don't think ultimately all of is gullible, I just think that he doesn't know or care about politics. He doesn't know or care really about the way that the government works. He, Mm. and I think this is, you know, in some cases, in some ways, I think he's quite a realistic character. He just wants everything to work the way it's supposed to, right? He Mm. wants a quiet life. He wants to sell fish in the market square. He wants to go to the, uh, the, the tavern in the evening and drink a pint of beer. He doesn't want to be, he's not interested, unlike his friend Vanek, who's very political, all of himself. I don't think he's he's completely gullible. I think he's just not interested in the machinations of government or politics. And so, and for, you know, for his everyday life, if you're standing out in the square selling fish, you probably don't need to know about all the detailed machinations of politics and government, right? But the and the fun I think of the book and the kind of conceit the central kind mm-hmm. of conceit of the book is to drop this guy in the middle of all of that Machiavellian plot and all these things that are going on within the politics and the government of the country and have him really have no clue what's going on around him. So I don't think ultimately he's a gullible person. I think he's just a regular person who doesn't understand that world. If that makes sense. His comprehension is a little off, yeah. Yeah. So how does Vanos get Corbin? How does and what, and what is this advice that he has to get? And what, what is it supposed to do? Um, yeah, that's a good that's a good question. So Vanos gets caught ultimately because um, well I won't I won't spoil too much of the of the plot, but essentially after the bomb goes off fairly early, 
And there are a couple of significant bomb explosions in this level. And, and after this, the first one, but all of get arrested, but also all most of the members of the people's group, mm -hmm. including Banat, get arrested and then all for them. Well, they all are. I, I won't give you a try what happens, but they are all charged. Mm -hmm. Various uh, offenses about about plotting to assassinate the the king. The device which the lever is attached to is intended to be a bomb that goes off across the street. So one of the fun parts about the first part of this book is that there's a lot of confusion. And for some reason, I haven't done that where this comes from because I have no clue. I really like the idea of uh, there's a big theme in the book is that two uh, hotels that are directly opposite each other with almost exactly the same name and everybody gets the two mm -hmm. hotels confused. And there's constant, as you, as you know, there's constant confusion throughout all the way through the novel about which hotel are you talking about. And mm -hmm. I don't know, I don't know why, it's just absurd and there's a lot of absurdity and the humor in the book. And so um, what happens, the device is intended to be that all the government agents are going to stay in one hotel. They need the car across the street because they know that the people's front are all staying. I've essentially booked out the whole of the other hotel. At, and this is because the king is coming through. To, there's going to be a parade in this town. The king is going to come through. Everybody's going to stand in the street with their flags and wave at the king. And so these, the, essentially the, the zealot folks, um, Zeller and... Kosek of book rooms in the opposite hotel, and the idea is that they've got a lever which is going to set off a bomb across the street in the People's Front Hotel, and they're going to set that bomb off at the moment when the king comes past, and they're going to blow mm -hmm. up his carriage. Uh, but because it was set in that hotel where the People's Front is staying, they're going to be able to then train the People's Front and say it's them who have, uh, have bombed the king's vehicle. And so, but the confusion comes in at the beginning because you get this message from Petrovich saying, I couldn't put it in that room. I had to put it in this other room. And then it turns out, and again, I won't give too much away, but it turns out that no. uh, all I've eventually worked out that there has been more confusion regarding the two hotels and things have not panned out the way that they were supposed to. I wanted to yell at him and say, do it this way, do it that way, but you can't. <laughs> So, so he, he gets, gets he joins the, the people's, people's party, party, right? And who, who is the leader? Why does he think his secretary is a mole? I don't know why I hear a backdrop on the phone. I'm sorry? I hear like a, an echo on the phone. I don't know why. I'm going to take my cell phone. Yeah. I'm getting that a little bit as well. Um, this is better. That's better. Okay, now I can hear you. Great. Um, yeah, so essentially, like I said, the, the two parties merge into this party called the People part, People's Party, and then what happens is, um, mm -hmm. in the middle of the book, Olaf is trying to, has been trying to extract himself from everything to do with the government, right? Uh, and um, doesn't want to have anything to do with any of this all ever again, and wants to just go back to being a fishmonger, and tries very hard to do that, but fails because um, there is a essentially Zella has decided that he's useful. As a uh, um, as a kind of a gullible ball um, mm. guy, and she, uh, but because he starts to become more assertive in the middle of the book and put his foot down, she has to find some leverage about how can she keep uh, kind of using him, and she what she does is essentially threatens his mother, and ultimately mm -hmm. she actually, they kidnap his mother and take her away somewhere to an unknown location, and so the reason for that is simply that. 
Zell thinks that he is going to stop becoming uh, cooperative and she needs to find a reason to keep him on the hook and so she this is this is where uh, this is why his mother his mother has got nothing to do with it apart from the fact that she's his only living relative and therefore he's the, she's the one person that he cares about more than anybody else and so they and they work this out and they kidnap his mother in order basically to get him to keep doing the government's nefarious deeds and as part of that he she wants him to join this political party that's now the people's party and he mm. he does that and he not only joins it but by uh, a mechanism that I won't spoil. He kind of accidentally becomes the head of security for the for the party. That I thought was so cool because he actually took it seriously. So who is Comrade yeah, John Colfer? Yeah, he does. He's great. That's what I love about him. And I think the fun. I think the hope. Hopefully, I think the fun brand of the book. A lot of the book is that he's a hero who things happen to him, but he doesn't really intend. He's he's mm. not. They always say your hero should have agency. I decided to write a book where the guy, like, with the, the hero with the least agency you've ever you've ever seen. He, this stuff just happens to this guy, and and he can't help <laughs> he can't help it. And it, most of the book he's trying to get out of the way, and he keeps failing, and keep, stuff keeps happening to him. And so he he gets appointed as the head of security for the People's Party, and so then that puts him in an interesting position because now he can get information about what the mm-hmm. party political party is doing, and that's what the government folks want to get hold of, of course. And so they start to use him as a, essentially as a mole. Well, why do they think he's a spy? And he's supposed to, you know, find so he, he goes to a meeting with the People's Party. So what's the purpose of that? That was clever. Yeah, so the, 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 the background that you pick up in the middle of the book about that is that the party has had a lot of problems in the past with imposters, mm. with people from the government or journalists who come and pretend to join the party, but are really just spying on them and finding out what they're doing. So they are very, and I think in a situation like this, if you've got a very kind of oppressive government, and you've got essentially just one political movement, it seems to me realistic that you would, there would be a lot of suspicion there about who anybody that came along to join. And so naturally when he goes to join, he's a completely non-political guy, suddenly shows an interest in becoming part of the political movement, they are naturally suspicious about why he's doing that and they start to dig into his background and they don't like what they're finding because they start to find connections between him and the Ministry of Security and that's when his relationship with his old friend, Citizen Vanek, I should have said by now, when they created this a new People's Party. His friend mm. becomes the de- deputy leader of that party, and the new leader is a guy called uh, Wolf, who was the leader of this, the original, the Workers' Party. They become leader and deputy leader, respectively. And so, that, but this guy Wolf and the folks from the other party are very suspicious of Olaf. They don't really know what his intentions are, and so he mm. starts to get into a situation where his relationship with his old friend Vanif is a little bit strained because of, because of that. I know. He doesn't know who to trust after a while. So what does she expect him to do? Describe National Day and what happens. Yeah, that's a good question. So National Day is, I mentioned there were two bombs, and the second bomb that goes off later in the novel is all around this thing called mm-hmm. National Day, which is back, now we're back in the capital city, mm-hmm. and it's obviously, it's like their it's like their 
Fourth of Fourth of July, right? This is their kind of um, their national day that they celebrate when in the capital city where there's a parade and then the king will stand uh, on the steps of the palace and will give a speech and the populace will just show up, you know, stand in the square and listen to the king speech, right? And this is when we have a national day of celebration of people And so the what Zella tells them is that she's going to choose she's trying still to achieve what she failed to do earlier on in the story, which is to get rid of the, the king and to put the crown prince's son on the throne. She's still trying to do that, although Olaf doesn't realize that that's what she's doing. And so she tells him, here's what we're going to do. You're going to get the, the, the new part of the people's party that's trying to burn, but it's going to be not live. It's not, it's not going to be a bomb that goes off. It's just going to be a, a dummy bomb that they can... We're going to, nobody, 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 nobody's going to get hurt. Nobody's going to get hurt. We're just going to plant a bomb and then we're going to find I'm going to get the police or the, somebody to find it and then we'll be able... Nobody will get hurt. There's no bloodshed required but then we'll finally be able to frame this political party and we're going to be able to throw them out in prison. So she's essentially doing still what she was doing at the beginning of this story. Mm-hmm. And she asked him, but now that he's not just in the party, but uh, has managed to become the head of security, she gets him to have people in the party go and plant this dummy bomb. And then, again, I don't want to give too much away, but let's say it no. go. And like everything else in this story, it doesn't go as planned. That's scary, let me tell you. He really doesn't understand his job, and he trusts white and he can trust his... But how does he become head of security? He doesn't even know what that means. Yeah, well, they have an interest. <laughs> Again, I, go, I don't want to give too much away because I think the fun is, is seeing it happen, but um, they have a very interesting, um, well, let's put it this way. This country is not democratic, right? This is clear in the, in the context. This is not mm-hmm. a democratic country. So the only time you ever see in this be somebody like Olaf has experienced what you might call a democratic election is in the context of what happens in this political party. So he's fascinated by this because they have mm. very, very organized elections. And there's a very, very kind of serious, almost religious atmosphere that goes on around the election process, right? Because they, these are revolutionaries who take their democratic rights extremely seriously, right, in a non-democratic country. Um, and and although, although it's absurd and there's a lot of uh, humor in it, I don't think that's particularly unrealistic. I think that's, again, that's kind of a realistic concept. And so... What happens is they are, when they create the new party, they have a democratic election for every position in this new party. And um, so I'll give a little bit away, but it is fun for the reader to watch it happen, but I have to give a little bit away to answer your question. What happens effectively is because of the situation that he was in at the beginning of the book, with a bomb that goes off when they're trying initially to assassinate the king, uh, he becomes something, and he doesn't know this, but he has become something of a celebrity, kind of a legendary figure in this revolutionary movement. They consider him, although mm. he's just a regular fishmonger, they consider him to be, to his surprise, something of a revolutionary hero, although he's not really. And so when they get to this election process and they start to vote for the different positions, he, they, to his great surprise, they vote for him to be the head of security, although he has no clue what that means, or he has no clue what he's going to do or what the job entails, and has to go off and ask Van Ever what, what, what the hell am I supposed to do now? But that's 
again, it's part of the fun, really, of the of the story is that he keeps things happen to mm. this guy rather than by him. You know. Now, what, I'm looking at page 179. How does Jealous, what is, what's her thinking? And how is she trying to trick him? So, I think you mentioned this one before, and I think 179 is, I, I think you're talking about the section of the book where they're, they're having an argument about his yeah. code name, which is Lazy Bishop, right? Is that the, right, the bit that you're looking at? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so again, so what happens? What so by now he's right in the middle of the book, and he's in, uh, he's essentially a mole in this political party, right? Being kind of moved around by Zeller and other folks in the government, and as you said, uh, he friend, he doesn't really understand what, what he's doing there. Yeah. And what happens? The argument between the two of them when there is to do with his code name. So he finds out through somebody else in the party uh, that there is a mole somewhere in the party called Lazy Bishop. Mm. And that's, so that's, this is a code name that the Ministry of Security has assigned to him. And he, he thinks to himself, is that me or is that somebody else? He has no idea. He just, they have found out that there mm-hmm. is a, um, an operative of this name. And so he has to then try and work out whether that's him or not, and he thinks it probably is, and so he decides, essentially, the reason that they have an argument on the, in the section of the book that you're describing is because he realizes, hey, this whole uh, business so far, I've been, you know, Zella's been manipulating me, she's been moving me around, mm. she's been able to, and I've had no advantage at all, everything has been against him, but suddenly, quite a long way into the story, he has, for the first time, an actual bit of an advantage over her, and that's that he knows what his code name is. It's supposed to be a secret. He's learned it, and so he decides to see what happens if he if he just drops it into conversation. And what happens is that she explodes in anger, right? Because he's not supposed to know that, and it demonstrates, it suggests that his cover has been blown, right? It suggests this is classic spy thriller trope kind of territory that we're in now, where. The fact that he knows his secret code name means that, and he said, she wants to know, where did you hear that? Who have you heard it from? How come that mm-hmm. code name, which is supposed to be secret, has got out? And suddenly, uh, for the, as I say, for the first time in the story, he has not the upper hand in his relationship with Zella, and he likes that, and he tries to work out, how can I get, use this little advantage that I've got uh, against her? How can I get a little bit of an upper hand for the first time? And that, so that's why they're having it an argument in that section of the story. Well, looking at, at all those one night here where he, he learns an awful lot. So who's Vice? Yeah, so Vice is an interesting character. So uh, Comrade yeah. Vice is is a ex-military guy who is, he's, he's the, the guy that was in the old people's front with the top security guy. So he's an, ex, an ex-soldier who's kind of angry He's a bit of an angry soul, and he is kind of a little bit violent. But he, and he doesn't like Olaf in particular because he thinks he's very suspicious. And it turns out that he's right. He's suspicious about what Olaf is doing in the party. So there is a constant theme throughout the story of aggravation between Olaf and Vice because Vice is kind of, has kind of essentially has sussed that Olaf is up to something that he's suspicious. And... He, Roloff uses his friendship with Vanev, who's the deputy leader, essentially to protect him. 
deeper on that. And so there's a number of situations in the story where Vanus mm. will step in to essentially to separate them or to save Olaf from Vice. But yeah, that's who that's who Vice is. He he's the guy that was previously the head of security and in the party and is uh, is and essentially Olaf takes over his his job. Well, there's a fight I have, chapter 26, between Vanoff and Weitz and, and poor Olaf, who's in danger, that's for sure. It's like, oh, my God, is he going to be okay? <laughs> yeah, in that section of the book, he's very much nearly not okay, right? There are a couple of times I really like... Yeah. I think it's important for the for your for the hero to be in real mortal danger once or twice in the mm-hmm. thriller, and this this is the bit that you're describing. It again won't give too much away, but he's very much uh, towards the end of the story in mortal danger for a while, and at the hands of the guy that we've just been talking about, Comrade Vice, and uh, it, this that's one of the examples of that I was just talking about where Olaf has to rely on on his own. He's he's a goner, right? He's mm-hmm. finished. And he has to rely on his friendship with Vanif to essentially get saved from a very precarious position. And I won't give away more than that because I think it's a fun scene. No. But com- Comrade Vice is the, often the antagonist. Uh, I mean, there are a number of antagonists. Agent Zeller is one of the, is the main one, but Vice is, an, is the secondary one. Well, well before, before I forget, Tuesday, Rachel and Michael, Trinity House will be here to talk about I Believe in You. On the 19th, the author of Echo of Vile, now this is big, the 24th, the author of Second Term. On the 26th, Gary Graver, Rumor of Evil. And on the 2nd, I get to show off my reading and writing skills. With Dr. Cavuto and I going to talk about the pros and cons of the science of reading. The new uh, program that everybody signed on to and should really think twice about. And on the 8th, not the 8th, like New York Times author, Philip Margolin and Betrayal. And that's needed in all of November. I am so excited. You have no idea. So, Chapter 28 is Citizen Olaf, and they have the year's surprise in loose. How does he feel when he meets the crown prince? Does that scene crack me up? Yeah, when he goes, you mean when he goes to the palace and actually gets an audience with yeah. the prince? Yeah. So he, yeah. So again, we're getting so deep into the book now that I'm, I'm finding it difficult to. I don't want to give too much away, but he, no. yeah, towards the, he does actually get. And again, we have to remember this is guy is a regular, working class fellow, fishmonger. He has never mm-hmm. seen the king or the crown prince except from you know in a very long in, from a very long distance, in a crowd, and gets the chance towards, and I won't say why, but he gets the chance towards the end of the book to have a one-on-one audience with the crown prince and is invited to the palace and sits with him and drinks tea. And that's it. So the answer is, how does he feel? He's very nervous about it because he doesn't really know what he's doing mm-hmm. there. He doesn't really have the, he doesn't really have the right clothes. He just, he only has one uh, suit that he bought. He, it, 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 it mentions earlier on in the book that he has, the reason that he has, a suit and a pair of dress shoes is because of his father's funeral some years before, and that's the, he only has one. So he dresses up in this, basically in his funeral suit because those are the only smart clothes that he has, and he goes to the palace and has an audience one-on-one with the crown prince. So as you could imagine, for somebody of his background, that's kind of a nerve-wracking experience. Mm-hmm. And he's got 
certain messages at this point in the story that he wants to convey, very important messages, including to do with the fate of his friend, Citizen Vanif. And so he has to go along, not just to be polite and drink tea, but he has to go and deliver a couple of messages in, the, in a way that he hopes that the Crown Prince will, will receive, receive them. And so he's pretty, as a regular working class guy, he's pretty nervous in that scene. And I think it's a lot of fun, hopefully. I, I would be nervous, too. Is, Is the Crown Prince very astute? Well, well what he decided to do, do which we won't say at the end, does that make, does does that that make sense? sense? Well, he, I think the crown prince is a kind of astute, wise fellow in the end, but there is some mm-hmm. ambiguity. Again, as I mentioned, friend, there's a bunch of ambiguity yeah. here. Well, I don't necessarily want to give you, I don't give the reader all of the answers, right? And I deliberately kind of, because, again, because the book is told in, from all of perspectives, so what you're getting is the extent to which he understands what's going on around him. I think it's true to say that the crown prince is an astute guy, uh, the, what's left open at the end, and I'll leave readers to make their own conclusion, is to what extent mm-hmm. is the Crown Prince nefarious character yeah. manipulating other people, and to what extent is he a little bit kind of innocent or unaware of what's going on around him? That's not answered in the book. I'm not going to answer it either. I think I would like readers to think about that. But mm-hmm. I think he, the, the Crown Prince is a smart guy. He's an astute guy. The question remains around him is whether he's nefarious or not, is, or whether he's Machiavellian or not, is is one, I think, for readers to, to have some fun with. I would like to see him have the upper hand of her and really let her have it right between the eyes. What can I say? <laughs> but you know what? You've got to read the book because anything is going to shock you. I know that. I think it will, yeah. I hope so. Yeah, the ending is intended, intended to... Uh, surprise readers, and I think it, so far, it, from the feedback that I'm getting, it seems to be working. Well, what, what, is, what does he find out about himself in the end? In the last chapter, to find his inability to understand his role, the, the documents, and everyone. So how does someone like him pull everyone to thinking that they know what he knows what he's doing? <laughs> well, uh, I think that's a good yeah, I know. You know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that, that uh, Fran, because just recently one of the reviews that I saw of the book mentioned the great old Peter Sellers movie being there, uh, if you remember that, and uh, where a guy, you know, the guy, the guy who's the gardener becomes kind of a significant player in politics kind of by mistake because people assume, when he says very simplistic things regarding gardening and people assume that he's actually imparting great political wisdom, although he's not really intending to. Um, I, I don't, and one of my reviewers had mentioned that in, in the review, which is very nice. I don't think Olaf is quite that. I don't think he's quite as kind of simple minded as the, as the character in, mm-hmm. in being there. But I do think he's, like I say, he's just a regular working class guy. And, so I think he's, but he's not, the distinction that we make in a number of points in the book is that doesn't make him stupid. He's not a fool. He's not a simpleton. He's just a regular person. And I think that means that, you know, if you give him some basic moral choices between good and bad, he's going to choose to do the good thing. And he does in various points in the story. But that, it's true to say as well that he doesn't make him a political expert, right? 
he's not somebody that understands the intricacies of policy around national security. And, that, and he's dropped in, a, in, in the end in a situation where, and again, we won't give too much away, but he's expected now to understand all of these intricate things to do with national security that he simply doesn't know about. That doesn't make him, like I say, it doesn't make him a fool, but it does make him a regular guy. It just makes him a regular guy. And so he does, I think, what the character does, and this is why I think, I hope he, that people find him endearing, he does what he always does, which is that he just uses his gut feeling to make, to respond to, to what, he, what he situations and to do what he thinks is the right thing. I think he just wants to feel that he's needed and that he could do something to help people. I think he takes things very literally at times. Which yeah, exactly. Do. Yeah, exactly. That's a nice way to put it. He he takes things literally. That doesn't make him simple, but I think he, no. he has a but he has a, a very straightforward view of the world. I think. I like his straight view of the world. I wish the world today would be more more like that too. It's really bad. Exactly. And I think there's some. Go on. So go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Brad. I think you've hit on something, which is. I think, you know, what, in terms of what am I doing in this book, I think yeah. the theme, the big, one of the big themes of it for me is about making sense of a world that often doesn't yeah. have to make any sense, right? I think we've all, in the last, maybe in the more recent years, I think in a number of different ways, probably many of us have felt like that. Like, I'm just a regular person. I want to get on with my life, and I want to do what I'm doing, and, you know, with my family and my friends. And why does the world seem crazy <laughs> around me? And how do I, as a regular person who just wants to be to, to do regular things, how do I make sense of the craziness that's going on in the wider world? Is that I think, if anything, is the core theme of the book. So how does he prove his loyalty to his friend, Savannah? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think again, I, we, we're so now we're kind of right. He, is, he does show a real act of kind of solidarity and loyalty with Vanek right at the end. And um, I won't say too much about how we get there because it would be giving too much away. But let's just say that no. there are several – I think the theme is that there are several points in the book, and we've talked about a couple of them, where Vanek really saves him from bad situations and in one or two cases even mm -hmm. death. And so he and they are really old friends. They've been working together in the fish business for 20 plus years, and this is his best friend in the world. And so when it really comes to the crunch at the end of the book, and he's in a position to do something for his old friend, who's now in the one in trouble, there's no question in his mind. It's, it's a no-brainer that he's going to bail Banner out of trouble because but he's, he owes him so much of a debt, really, from all the things that have happened before. So that's, the, without doing the detail, that's the theme of the relationship between the two of them. So who else is, he, who else is part of his job? I don't want to say what he gets. I don't want to say what he gets in the end, but I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, let's not, let's not say what exactly he ends up with at the end. But yeah. He, he, let's, I think the way that I like to put it is, the, uh, there's a, you know, you, I think it's important to have a character arc. Your character has to go somewhere. And in this case, he ends up, his position in life at the end of the book is a very different than it is at the beginning of the book. And it's not one necessarily that he feels comfortable with. 
as I say, he, he feels where he feels comfortable is being a fishmonger, standing out in the market, talking to regular people. That's where, that's where his happy place is. And so he, at the end, he ends up, in a, as you say, in a very different place. And I mm-hmm. think he has very mixed feelings about whether or not that's where he wants to be or not. And at the end, he visits the, visits the palace one more time. So who could he trust at the end? That's what gets me. It's like, oh, my God. And then, then the prince doesn't want political parties, and he speaks up. Yeah, I think the, the, at the end, one of the fun things I think about the end of the book is that you still really are not entirely sure who all of, and therefore the reader is not entirely sure who's trustworthy and who's, who's not. So we get uh, I, what I hope is a satisfying conclusion of sorts for the reader, um, and I think it is a fun ending, which is you know largely going to keep people back surprised. But on the question of who can you trust now, who's trustworthy, who's telling the yeah. truth, I think that that question is still very much open to America. So who is Bartova and what does he want to know from him, especially the, the members of the People's Party and where they are? So I don't know whether you're referring to, so Bartova is his private secretary, and there are two names that are a little bit similar. Bartova is his private secretary mm-hmm. or somebody else who works at the ministry. Bartova is the person that we were just mm-hmm. talking about before, who is the, an operative in the, or not a, a member of, uh, um, of the people party. So um, two different people, and she's the one who we find out later on. She is the one who is um, find, who's finding information for the party, and is in, um, from out of the, from the government, finding government secrets and passing them to to the party. So she's essentially essentially a mole. He's a mole for the government in the middle of the book, and Vancouver is a mole for the party, and the other is a few of the moles who are, who are trying to fight them against each other. And that's the case, yeah. so. This is what I've always found hard when I'm writing. How did you create part one? Is it an account of the attempted assassination of His Majesty the King? And then underneath each chapter, you tell us in which our hero meets a new and unexpected challenge. How did you decide that under each chapter? Because that's what kept me going, because I wanted to know what happened. <laughs> in which case, that's my me. plan works. My plan works. Yeah, so that, the origin of the chapter titles, so, yeah, for those that have not read it, every chapter is called In Which Our Hero Does Something, yeah. right? Chapter one, In Which Our Hero Meets in the Unexpected Challenge. That's a, I really like chapter titles. I just have an old-fashioned view about this, Fran, which mm-hmm. is that used to be fairly common in, 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 in literature a long time ago. It's gone, kind of gone away now. People just call their chapter one and two, but to me that's boring. And I wanted, and I read a lot, have read an awful lot of um, classic Russian literature, um, Dostoevsky, Tiffany Gogol, and then other European writers like Kafka. And in those days, and I think I got, I think I stole it from the Russian writer Nikolai Gogol, actually, who would have these kind of chapter titles. But that's a long time ago, right? He was, uh, um, mm. You don't, like I say, you don't tend to see that very often anymore. And so I thought it would be fun to bring it back 
One, because it just gives mm-hmm. a sense of age, because this book is, you know, set, as you said, it's set in the, around the time of the mm-hmm. Great War 100 years ago. But it gives a sense of age, but it also does exactly what you just described, which is that it gives the, the chapter title, gives the reader a little flavor of what's going to happen next without giving too much away. And so it keeps you on the hook to find out what happens. Well, that's what I, that's what I liked about it, because I said, okay, am I going to find out what's going to happen now? And I was like, oh, God. You see, I don't do that. I like horror. And I kill people. There are people that get to tell this story, so each chapter is something different. And they don't relate to the one before. And they choose stories. That's even scarier. So what's next for Orla? Well, that's a nice question. So actually, I'm very, right at the end of writing the sequel. So there is going to be all of two. I will not say the title of it yet, but um, it's going to be, I don't, and I don't know when it's going to come out. Apparently, it may take a little while for these things to, uh, it always takes a little while to get a book on the shelf, as you know. But um, just, just in, the, in the process of finishing off the sequel right now, I'm sending it to my publisher, uh, certainly before the end of this year. Well, you're lucky because it's very hard to get somebody to publish your book. And Camcat is really good, I understand. But it's really hard to get get anybody to look at the type of stuff that I write, which is from the point of view of the dead person telling their story because they're wrongly accused. That was my last one, accusations. And I got some good vibes and some bad. They don't quite understand. Five of the stories were true. I said, what was my grandmother's story in the concentration camp? My grandmother being abused, living in Russia, and a teacher in my school that was wrongly accused by the principal, and she committed committed suicide at the end. So they're true stories, but they didn't quite like them. What can I do? Anyway. Well, as you say, it's tough. You're right, it's tough. I'm, yeah, I am lucky. Camtat is a, a great uh, small publisher, really enthusiastic folks, and they actually... Uh, have an option on the second book, or any, you know. So my my contract with Olaf gives them the chance to have the first uh, look at the sequel. Which, so I'm going to send that to them uh, before the end of the year. So. You're lucky because I did an independent one with Population Zero, which was the one before Accusation, a world without people, living in darkness, cold, ice, whatever. And I thought it would teach everybody a lesson because of COVID. And that you would appreciate the world we live in because you don't want to live in one of mine. And some people liked it and some people didn't quite get the message. So that's what bothers me the most. So there's going to be a sequel and who's coming back? <laughs> well, I told you, back. that's me. All of you certainly coming back because obviously he's, so. going to be the, he's going to be the, the the question is what happens next and um, in the country that's kind of on the brink of this, of the mm-hmm. tensions that they're in and I'll give you a little bit of a I'll give away a little bit of something uh, because and I think this will make sense Brian after you've read the first one is uh, this country is on the brink of uh, yeah. uh, of a boiling point and what we get at the beginning of book two is the civil war essentially in which the revolutionaries try uh, the Revolutionary Party tries to bring down the government and everything that follows from that. And the whole of the book, of the second book, is about Olaf finding himself uh, in the middle of 
the country's civil war, which is not where he wants to be. <laughs> but he finds himself right for different reasons, which I think, the, again, the reader will have fun with. He finds himself in the middle of the civil war. That That's scary, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so where can everybody find out more about you and the work? And um, tell me something. Are you going to do another tour with, with uh, Partners in Crime? Because they are the best. Yeah, they're great. I'm, I hope so. I'd like to do them. I'd like to do a tour with uh, with them again next time when the sequel comes out. Um, in terms of where uh, folks can find me, yeah, the best place to find me is jonathanpain.org. Uh, Pain is spelled P-A-Y-N-E. Jonathanpain.org, and that you can see what I'm up to on the website, and all of my social media links are up there as well. Well, I want to thank you so much for brightening up my day. Seriously. <laughs> and I have the link already set up so that I could just send it to Gina. Oh, and your review is on Just Reviews. I hope you like it. I hope I my 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 WordPress for some well, my Word not WordPress my Grammarly for some reason I have to correct something 17 times and sometimes it changes it back to the wrong word. I just hope it didn't do it again because I, I changed it again this morning. It's like whatever, and I. Put it on Amazon with 27 stars, but we'll find out later. I'm pretty sure I did. Okay. So thank you so much. This is, I'll tell you something. I read so many books, and after a while, you know, sometimes when a ca- person writes a character in a series, it's the same character, just another plot, and they go like, oh, God, why me? But this won't be like that. This is different. Well, thank you. I hope but, so. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you so much, everybody. It's a beautiful day outside. Pick up a copy of Citizen All Up, and um, my UPS guy asked me for this when he heard I read it. So he's going to get next. You're serious. He gets all my books next. Thank you so much. Everybody have a great day. Jonathan, thank you, and bye.